for leading us. You aren't quite like Wendell, but uh, it was wonderful. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we are going to be looking, uh, as we continue learning how to practice biblical humility, uh, we're going to look there in Colossians 3 at uh, the element of it being a spiritual discipline. I would like to mention that uh, in the back, our resource table over there is actually a way that Bonnie and I fund what we do now full-time. We used to only do it 10 weeks a year, uh, but we actually now travel and minister, and I'll talk about that during the Q&A time. There are two uh, packages over there I'd like to tell you about. The first one I call the Believer's Toolbox. It has a digital copy of all the books that I've written, you know, so that you can read them on your e-readers, uh, plus it has the audio messages. Uh, the book that I have over there called Discipline Yourself for Godliness was a year-long look at the disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, you know, the discipline of, of scripture meditation, of scripture reading. I talk about uh, the, the repetitive reading of the Word of God, looking for different themes uh, and studying through all of those. Uh, living the Word-Filled Life of New Beginnings is a study actually did on Sunday nights of every reference in the Bible on the Holy Spirit. And uh, everything the Holy Spirit does. Uh, the power of word-filled prayers. Uh, once I read the whole Bible through with a blue highlighter one month and highlighted every person that prayed, what they prayed for, how they prayed, what position, what location, all the elements and found the longest prayer and the shortest prayer. And what I concluded after a year is that I don't pray at all like they did in the Bible. You know, most of us pray the Lord will help us on our exam and help us get a job and get better from, you know, whatever. And the prayers in the scriptures are amazing. And that's why it says that Anna and Simeon, if you remember those elderly people at Christ's birth, it says that Anna served the Lord day and night with prayers and fastings, which meant she didn't have an appetite and she couldn't sleep. That's how we would say it. You know, I'm having trouble with my appetite and not being well and I can't sleep. She couldn't sleep and couldn't eat, so she served the Lord with prayer and fasting. She used the not eating to, to say no to her flesh and yes to the Lord, and she used her time to pray. And so I go through the power of word-filled prayers. That's one of the MP3 CDs, and an MP3 has 30, it's a month of studies, 30 lessons, and it has the printed copy, and it has the video copy. Uh, the next one on there in this pack is the Master's Message of Eternal Life. And as a soul winner myself, I decided I'd study every time the gospel was presented in the Bible, cover to cover. The first thing I learned is Jesus never presented the gospel the same way twice, ever. You know how we, you know, either use the four spiritual laws or whatever our favorite is, and we kind of... Jesus tailored his gospel presentation to the person, had the same overarching framework, but he never said it the same way twice. And I go through every gospel presentation of the gospels in the book of Acts in that MP3, uh, the Reward of a Word-Filled Ministry is a study of John 15, and then there's a whole component here on, on spiritual warfare. Now, the reason I say that is these packs, uh, this one has six MP3s, six complete studies that we teach in training centers around the world, but Bonnie always offers, anybody that gets two of them, they get a free book, any book I have over there, uh, which is really a deal because one of the books over there is $30, and it's, it's amazing. The other pack I want to tell you about is Finding Biblical Quietness. Uh, this is probably one of the more frequent when I speak to groups that are kind of like the California lifestyle, you know, where they commute an hour or an hour and a half every way and they work long hours and they leave when it's dark, they get home when it's dark, 
and it's like their life is on a treadmill and they always feel guilty because they're not keeping up with the kids or with the church or with their wife or with their whatever. And, and the scriptures talk about a lifestyle like Christ. He had a hyperkinetic, super busy life, but he was never in a hurry. And he experienced, through the disciplines of solitude and simplicity, uh, the, the idea of going through life that is overloaded with people and having this serenity that, that comes from understanding quietness. Quietness is of the soul. It's not the life. You live, I mean, Jesus never was able to quiet the world around him other than when he stilled the sea. But he lived in a serenity that he offers that we see even in the Apostle Paul's life. He wasn't going crazy in prison. He just had this quietness in his life. So the, it's a video, 30-lesson uh, study of that, and wrapped in with it is my favorite book. It's the study of the life of David. It's called David's Spiritual Secret. Uh, David is the most written about person in the Bible. There are 141 chapters of God's word that describe David's life. More than any other human, other than our Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, David is the premier character in the Bible, more than anyone else. And we find in David's life every element you could ever want to find. David had problems with his kids. He had problems with his wives, as in plural. He had problems with his in-laws. He had problems with his employer. He had problems. He was out of work. He was laid off. He was fired. He was hunted night and day. Uh, David had problems with his enemies. He had problems with his own emotions. We would call him manic depressive. I mean, he's either singing of the glory of God or in Psalm 13, he says, I'm in a pit and I despair and I think God's abandoned me. David is a man who God used to show us every dimension of life. In fact, there's a lesson in there. Uh, is depression sin? Because if it is, then a lot of people that are famous in God's work would be sinning. Spurgeon was a lifelong depressed person. Uh, the Charles Haddon, as in the speaker, that was one of the greatest English-speaking pastors in the world. Spurgeon would preach on Sunday, and on Monday they'd put him on a train, and they'd take him to a coastal city called Mentone because he was in such deep depression he couldn't even talk. And by about Thursday or Friday, he would get well enough for them to train him back to London so he could get ready to preach on Sunday. Uh, that's just an example. Martin Luther was probably the worst. Martin Luther said, I suffer such deep depression that it is inexplicably dark and black. And he said, if I told you what I think, he said, you, you wouldn't believe it. And yet, what do we think of Martin Luther? We're celebrating his 500th anniversary of the theses on the Wittenberg door. Many, Paul, the apostle, said that, that he struggled despairing of life, feeling so squashed. So there are some people that are these Zig Ziglar, <laughs> you know, oh, kind of like uh, <laughs> around here we see a lot. But there is a whole, <laughs> a whole dimension of people that are what I call minor key people. And they are not these, you know, bubbly everything. They just kind of are minor key. They're not the major key. They're not up there like, they just are right on the edge of kind of being a little sad. And David was one of those, and God profiles his life, and so I spend the whole book talking about his spiritual secret for becoming the man that it says in the book of Acts, David fulfilled God's purpose in his own generation. And that's all the Lord wants from us. He doesn't want us to be anybody else. He wants us to fulfill what God designed us to be, 
while we're here on earth, and he has a plan, and he's given us everything we need to do it, and it's just surrendering and incrementally doing that through life. So that's my uh, resource table advertisement. Any two, you get a, a free book. Uh, we've already seen the seven greatest words, he must increase, I must decrease. We've already seen Jesus talking about that, that prayer framework that uh, the early church embraced, and they focused on God and, and, and surrendered his control and asked him to lead and provide. And we looked at that. Then Luke described what a humble person looks like through the shepherds. We talked about that. Last night, uh, we looked at Peter's message that we're to gird on humility. He, he called it like the slave's apron, especially suffering. Uh, it, a humble person goes through suffering better than, than the proud because uh, the humble person already uh, has nothing that they're, they're fighting for. They're, they're, just, they're just serving. And so we went through that. But Paul's message is that humility is a spiritual discipline. And uh, in Colossians uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, and I'll just remind you, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. That is an imperative, an aorist uh, imperative. Tender mercies, kindness, humility. There it is. It's that clothing ourselves, putting on humility. Meekness, I mean, that's another thing you never see in anybody's description of themselves. I'm very meek. We, it's amazing we avoid these biblical uh, disciplines, uh, choices, and long-suffering. So, so basically, um, uh, people who are humble have a, a chosen spiritual discipline, and we'll look at that. And also, next or this evening, we're going to look at the spiritual warfare element. And uh, there is, in this toolbox, uh, that whole study on the armor of God and spiritual warfare. But uh, the component I'd like to show you today from Colossians 3.12 is that the backdrop of all of Paul's epistles are not self-help things. They're not like how to have a happier life, which is kind of the component of a lot of American Bible teaching these days. Most people are, they go to the bookstore, they want to get a book, you know, the whatever diet or whatever, you know, to, to help them have a kind of a better quality life. And, and really what Paul was doing is he said, the purpose that we're here is to serve God. And if you humble yourself, you will better be able to do what God left us on the earth to do. Many Christians have lost sight of what we're here to do. We're here not to just go through life and amass as much stuff as we have so our kids argue over it and you have to, you know, uh, have some lawyers divide up the stuff. Actually, we're supposed to give everything to God and say, how do you want to use it? And often the best use of it is not to give it to our kids. But I'm not a will, you know, financial planner. I'm not going to talk about that. But how to reach our world and our generation, Paul's method was put on humility. Humility is a spiritual discipline, and humble people are patient. And patient people can reach their generation. And us sitting here represent... Did you know just us being here this morning represents something? We represent what God started at Pentecost. We are downline from what began on the day of Pentecost. And I want you to think about the fact that knowing Jesus Christ today means that someone passed it on. Someone shared the gospel with me, with you. And someone explained to us that we were born lost, and you don't get Christianity by osmosis. It's not like because you're in a garage, you're a car. Because you go to church, you're a Christian. Because you're in a Christian family, you're automatically a Christian. It doesn't osmotically pass to us. It's rather 
a new birth. It's an event. Birth is an event. Father of eight, you know, I just got queasy through all eight births. You know, the, I think sometimes they put me on the, you know, they were taking care of me, not Bonnie, because I didn't like blood. You know, it made me kind of queasy. And so a birth is a traumatic event. A lot of people have never been born again. They go to church, they think they're a Christian. And just like as much as being in a garage would make you a car, it doesn't. And so what we're here today representing is we're a local piece of the, the, the church that Jesus Christ is building. And following his death and burial and resurrection and ascension, the most amazing event in all of human history began at Pentecost. The church was born. And the Holy Spirit began to apply the sacrifice of Christ to doomed earthlings and made them sons and daughters of God. So think about what that means. What happened at Pentecost? Basically this, across a sin-darkened world of the first century, a new day dawned. The, the first century was a time of moral debauchery. The Roman historians, Tacitus, for example, described Rome as a cesspool. You know what that is? A septic tank. We don't have those. We have, you know, public sewers. But I remember septic tanks, you know. Some people didn't quite install them right, and the back of their yard kind of smelled, you know. You knew there's something bad out there. And a cesspool is even worse. It's an open septic tank. That's how the Romans described their culture. What a transformation God began in AD 30. In one generation, the generation of the lifetime of the apostles, people that were crippled by racial enmities. You think we have racial problems now? We have racial problems with some kind of, uh, you know, system where people like IJM and others are, are going for taking away the enmities and the strife and the slavery and the, the denigration of humans. But people were racially embittered to death and ripped apart by ethnic strife. And people were marred by cruel inhumanity, the treatment of slaves, like an object. People were drowning in sexual perversion. I mean, the orgies of the Roman Empire are legendary. You know, Caligula and his boats of, of evil. And people were plunging headlong into self-indulgences. When you eat hummingbird tongues, it's the quintessential self-indulgence world. And people were chained to idolatrous false worship. All the pantheon of gods of the ancient world. And all those people were gloriously changed. In one generation, spanning the lifetime of Christ's 12 apostles, the whole world was touched. The light of the gospel dawned on countless hearts. There was no part of the empire untouched. From China to Africa, from Britain to India, across the trade routes to the furthest outposts, like a forest fire marching across sin-parched woods, the dry and barren lives of people all over the world flamed to life. It was, it was a wonder to behold. The fire of Pentecost burned into the lives of the people that day the image and life of, of Jesus Christ. And people, people began to reflect him, so much so that when Paul writes in his prison epistles, he says, those of the household of Caesar greet you. As Paul was chained between soldiers, and they went through their shifts, he was leading them to Christ. As the servants were around Paul was sharing in his prison so that the household of Caesar was coming to faith. The fire of the gospel has never stopped. 
This week, the fire of Pentecost has ignited souls even more. I mean, I was just talking to one of the saints from Calvary Bible, and she was excitedly telling me about the latest group of people she took down to share the gospel, and she's training an army of young people. She takes teenagers and college kids, and she has this little gospel bag, and she has a track for every type of person they could ever meet, whether they're Islamic or Hindu or just a pagan American, and she has all of this, and she trains them how to share the gospel. Every day, the group worshiping Jesus Christ grows larger when you add all those that are already around his throne with all those that are coming to faith on earth. God's spirit still is washing clean sin-stained hearts. Think of the worst person you know, the most hideous, the most enslaved by sin, the most uh, person you would feel uncomfortable around. That person could become a glorious, beaming, transformed individual through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can do that. Medically, we can affect the outside of people. Uh, you know, you can change what they look like, you can change what they act like, as long as they're under the influence of the whatever chemical you give them, but you can't change who they are. The gospel is the only thing that gets inside people and liberates them, transforms them from the inside out. And God's spirit is still breathing life into sin-darkened souls. Uh, I, I could tell stories all day because I love sharing the gospel, but I have shared the gospel with people unwillingly. I've shared the gospel. It's kind of like the man I told you at Walgreens. Uh, I'm not an evangelist. I do the work of evangelists. I'm not an evangelist. I don't lay awake at night thinking how I can get up and go lead someone to the Lord, but I want to obey him and I share the gospel. And I've seen the worst people come to Christ. I led a guy to Christ that was uh, special forces. I don't know what degree, black, belt, martial arts guy who used to enjoy sitting next to pretty girls at bars so the boyfriend would get upset so he could knock him out and win the girl. And that guy was as lascivious and hard-hearted and cold and cruel and inhumane. The way I met him is he barged into my office wearing his walking pants, which were way too short, embarrassingly short for a man. You know, girls can have short ones, but men with short shorts look really awful. And he came in, no shirt, little tiny pants, pushed my secretary out of the way and said, I want to see the father. That was my first clue. He didn't know anything about the church. I was the father. I mean, he must have been Roman Catholic or something. And he pushed his way in there, and he told me a story of beating everybody up, and he said, I walk through your church parking lot on Sunday mornings, and the people go into their cars, radiate something I don't have. I, father, tell me what they have that I don't have. He said, I have the pretty girls. He said, I've got the muscles. And boy, did he. I mean, just moving his arms, they just moved with him. He was just very worked out and everything. And he said, I have everything physical, but I don't have what your parking lot people have. And in that office, that man, all I did is open the Bible and started sharing from Titus 3 and talked about what the Bible says God can do in transformation and I was so busy reading that when I looked up, he was gone. I thought he'd left my office because I was looking in my Bible. And I moved my Bible, and he was down on his knees on the floor of my office. And he said, I'm ready. I want it. And right there on the carpet of my office, this sweaty, little shorted guy with all the big muscles cried out to the Lord, and I gave him a paperback Bible. He read it that week. I mean, he was into this. 
actually it was the New Testament, you read all eight hours of it, and, and just uh, went through, no, New Testament takes 18 hours. Boy, he did have a busy week. He read all 18 hours of the New Testament, came back to me, and he said, there's a sequel to this. It refers to another, I said, well, that's the Old Testament, so I gave him that. And he was so, he figured out there was more, and he read that. And the next, about the end of the month, he says, I would like to be baptized. And when he got baptized, I'll read to you what he read, because he came into the baptistry, went up to the microphone, and he said, he told how he'd gotten saved and came walking, barging in in his little shorts and everything and scared my secretary. And he said, but I found myself in the Bible. He said, it's in, in Titus 3. But we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But then the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And he looked up from that. You know, almost everybody knew him because he wore those little shorts power walking around town with two 15-pound weights. He went like this, and he power walked every street of that town where I pastored. And he was just the sight. And there was him standing up in the baptistry, reading Titus 3. God's Spirit is still washing clean sin-stained hearts, breathing into sin-darkened souls, filling empty, hopeless lives, transforming barren people into living gardens of the fruit of the Spirit. His name was Douglas. I still in touch. I get Christmas cards from him. He married one of the sweetest ladies in the church. And... They are serving the Lord. And he was the hardest, proudest, most, I mean, he lived for gross immorality. And just the word of God, responded to by faith, made him into what looked like a lifelong Bible toting saint. And that's what God does. So how do we reach the world in our generation? Colossians 3.12 tells us, Paul is trying to encourage a group of people that he'd never met. Remember, Paul's never been there. That's, that's what it says in, in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, as many as have not seen my face. Paul never met these people. The book of Colossians is written to the lower third. Remember yesterday we were talking about the upper two-thirds of Roman province of Asia, Turkey. This group lived in the bottom third. So Peter reached the top third, two-thirds, and Paul was doing his missionary stuff in the bottom third of the same area, and these people he'd never gotten to. So he writes him a letter. And, and Paul was in prison, as he wrote. He could no longer freely cross the, the Roman Empire. His internship at Antioch, three missionary journeys, had forged close ties, and so from probably Caesarea, Maritima, where he was two years in prison, he's writing a letter back to a group of people he wanted to get to and never got to, and that's what Colossians 3.12 is. And this is what he says. He says, living for Christ is possible when it's hard. These people were going through what Peter was preparing them for, because it's the same time period. It's the 60s. And they're going through the growing persecution. And so the Apostle Paul says, I know the culture. I know your struggles. I know your needs. And from prison, he says, you can live for Christ when it's hard. Now let me show you a little bit, because most people don't 
think about this. Um, this is Paul's life, a graphic of it. He was probably saved a couple, three years after the crucifixion, so about AD 33, you know, somewhere in there. He immediately after salvation goes to Arabia, if you remember, and the Lord Jesus Christ teaches him personally. You remember he said that. He says, no man taught me, Jesus taught me. Then uh, he's, uh, he, he goes from there back home to Tarsus. In fact, most Bible scholars think that the Apostle Paul was probably seven years at home. He went back where he came from and probably got a lot of the beatings and everything from home. And then he goes, he shows up in Antioch. By the time we get to Acts 11, he's saved way back in, in Acts 9. Two chapters plus later, he shows up again. And he comes under the tutelage of Barnabas. Now, just do a little math here. Paul is saved for 13, almost 14 years before he goes on his first missionary trip. That is not at all how we operate these days. Paul prepared for a decade and a half to do the spectacular ministry that we read about. Very interesting. His first missionary journey starts about A.D. 47. So basically, we could sum up Paul's life. Paul trained 14 years to serve for what I'm going to show you in a moment. Everything you read about of Paul's spectacular crisscrossing the world thing was one decade. That's it. So think about that. God seems to run on a different schedule than we do. Paul trained for 14 years to serve for 10 we would say, I'll train for six months to serve for 23 years. That's how we think humanly. God seems to run a different schedule. God is never in a hurry, and God enjoys us waiting. We don't like to wait. In fact, waiting is one of the hardest things for me. Bonnie is so patient with me. I mean, we, we drive around so much that I come to the toll booths, and I look, I'm counting as I'm pulling off to pay the toll, Three cars, three cars, two cars, two cars. One car! Over there, and I get in that one. And this is the person that pays in pennies. They're toll, you know. And all, the, all of the toll booths are empty. I'm still behind the one car because I hurriedly went to the shortest line. Walmart. Uh, we're going along, and I'm count I even look how much stuff they have on the conveyor belt, you know. And I pull in, and I get the lady that's getting three items and has 12 coupons and is desperately telling the lady I can use all my coupons. And all the other lanes. So we have trouble waiting. God enjoys us waiting. He asks us to be still, to wait on him, trust his timing, and allow him to be strong when we're weak. But we like to go fast. See, we, th we think that progress, in America, progress is everything. You've got to make progress. You know, you've got to get somewhere. I don't even know where we're going. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there, but I want to get there. And, and God says no. We're in a hurry. We hate to wait. We want everything to be clear from the start. We want to be free from difficulties, or we change course, or we change our mind, or some people even quit. God is so different. Look at Paul's second half of life. After he prepared 14 years, here's the, the 10 years. He, he had the first missionary journey, 46, 47. He has the second missionary journey. He has the third missionary journey. So he finishes his 10 years of missions and goes into his final decade in prison. Paul had 14 years of training, 10 years on the job, 10 years 
hard, alone, suffering decade. But look what comes out of it. Missionary journeys are pretty prolific. Galatians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, uh, 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians, Romans, and the, the previous epistles, his early epistles. But then, from prison, while he's in Caesarea, probably from Caesarea he wrote Ephesians and Philippians. Either from Caesarea or Rome, he wrote Colossians and Philemon. He's in prison in Caesarea, he's in prison in Rome, he's let out of his, his first Roman imprisonment briefly, and then immediately arrested after he tries to, to go to some places, and he gets into his final imprisonment, and he's beheaded. It's amazing. What we could conclude from just looking at Paul's life story is, you add 14 years of training to 10 years of ministry plus 10 years in prison, and that's God's formula for a ministry that impacts millions of people for the last 20 centuries. That's why this book is so interesting. What are the lessons we can learn in godly living that Paul wrote from prison? Paul was writing to the heart of those churches struggling in that Roman province of Asia, the lower third. Just as Christ would address 30 years later, Remember, Jesus wrote to the same area in his seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the same place this Colossian epistle is going to. Jesus writes, because Laodicea is mentioned, Colossian and Laodicea were beside each other. And, and these people faced overpowering temptations to sin every day. It's kind of like they lived in Vegas, you know, with those big, you know, uh, illuminated boards of advertisements. Kind of like, that's what... Roman province of Asia was like living in Las Vegas. But the solution God gave was always the same, repent. Go back to the factory settings. You know, I, I was talking to a man who's an engineer with Microsoft, and he was way over my head. He's just a genius. And I think about what I do with my phone. Every time it stops acting up, I turn it off and let it restart, you know. And I do that with my computer, too. My computer freezes, and I think I have too many things going at once. And I don't even know the proper way, so I just pull the cord out the back plug it back in and it takes about five minutes and it shakes and everything and the big apple shows up and this line, this white line goes across and it's back to the way they made it. I don't know how it does it, it fixes itself when you restart it. That's like repentance. We go back to the factory settings. I, I like to put it this way. We start out here close to the Lord at salvation, and through all these different struggles we have, we take steps away from God. And we get to points where we're so far away, we feel so distant from him, and what the Lord says is, no matter how many steps away from me you've taken as a believer, it's only one step back. What's that one step? Repent. See, repentance takes us instantly back to the factory settings. The Lord, he does not cause us to do penance, you know, crawl on our knees and flagellate ourselves to get back to him. Now, a lot of Christians would rather do that. You feel better when you can beat yourself up and, and, and make it real hard. But the Lord says, the instant we repent, we come right back, right to the front of the relationship with him, instantly. The solution is always the same. Everything starts with salvation's key element called justification. By faith, we reached out, we received the payment of the justifying death of Christ. And instantly, the justifying death of Christ opens for us the sanctifying life. 
The Christian life is all about applying what Christ did once and for all to our daily walk. And that's what humility is. It's just saying, I want to be sanctified by you. I don't want to be proud like I was born. And I want you, by your grace, to unleash the power to overcome temptation, to mortify sin, to liberate me from bondage. That's salvation. Basically, we're called to swim against the current. Uh, we were staying at one person's house, uh, Bonnie and I, and I'll tell you the next hour, I've had this wonderful journey going from 40 years in the pastorate to being a pastor uh, to the nations and do what I did for 40 years in America to people that have never had the, the level that we have here in America and are used to. But where we were staying at their home, it was by the Thorn Apple River, and I was watching all these people. They go tubing. It reminds me of the Christian life. They get off at the dam where the waterfall is and the Thornapple River's flowing. They get on their tube. Effortlessly, they float downstream. Have you ever been on a canoe trip? That's what they always do. They take you up, upstream, drop the canoes off, put the people in with the paddles, and the people splash each other and get in and out of the canoes, but the canoes just keep moving with the current to where they're going to pick them up. It's really a neat industry. Drop them off upstream, they float down, and the paddle will even float down, and the canoe will get there, and when they get to the end, unload them and take the canoes back and do it again. That's like life. You and I were born into a world with a strong current going away from God. And we were, we were floating toward destruction down the river of life, away from God, when all of a sudden Jesus was standing in the river, and he gets our attention, he says, hey, you're going the wrong way. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Everybody is in their canoe going that way. I want to turn your canoe around. And you need to paddle upstream. Do you know what the Christian life is? It's swimming against the current of the world. Do you know what happens when we do that? When Paul talks about it, he says, they think, Peter talks about it, he says, the, the worldly people think you're crazy. You're not acting like them. You're not partying like them. You're not living in dissipation and in anger and malice and wrath and lust. Why? Because we're paddling against the current of the world and against our flesh. And so Paul told these people, he sat to write to the Colossians, and he was writing to a group of saints who were swimming every day against the strongest imaginable currents of the world. Do you know how the Roman people performed their athletics? I think you do. You ever seen the, the Olympic figures? You know, the discus guy? Have you ever seen the Olympic discus guy from the Greek world? He's not wearing any clothes. And it's not just because it's a Greek statue. That's how they did it. All athletics were done in the gymnasium. If you know Greek, gymnas is the Greek word for naked. How do you like that? Sports were done with no clothes. That's why homosexuality, can you imagine covering your body with olive oil and wrestling? That's, that's the, the sports world was rife with homosexuality. That's the, the, what corroded the Roman Empire, the Greco sports thing into the Roman discipline made unbridled homosexual burning lust that just ignited across the empire. So those people were living with unimaginable. How would you like to live near the sports field? And every time you looked out the window, people were running around with nothing on. Then they went from there to the bathhouse, and that's where the women were. And they all just enjoyed the bathhouse with the women because your wife was at home taking care of the house and your legal children. That's why you got married. You had to have a legal heir. But men did not have any sexual events other than having children at home. 
all their fun was out in the gym, the naked place, and the bathhouse. And that's the world they lived in. You went to business, you were served by slave girls, mostly half unclothed, if not all unclothed, and you went to meal. Business lunches were sensual. And that's life in the Roman world. Overpowering temptation. And one day the great letter came from Paul, and he said to them, look at Colossians 3, I want you, back up, as it says in verse 5, put to death your members, Colossians 3, 5, which were on the earth. What's first on the list? Fornication. You can't live in the bathhouse, gymnasium, you know, dancing girl lifestyle anymore. Uncleanness, that's talking about it and enjoying it. Passion, evil desire. And then here comes the material side, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's what life was like in Colossae. And Paul says, put it to death. Look at verse 8. You also are to put off anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language. That's the old you. Verse 12, put on. So that's what Paul said. He said, life is all about sanctified living. And, and basically, and, and I've got to, ooh, we only have four minutes. Let me describe the Christian life real quick. The two sides of saving faith. Most people only think of salvation as me calling on the Lord and him taking my sins. That's how I illustrate when I share the gospel with people that are pagan that don't understand. I say, this is you, and then I have my black Bible. Sorry, I have brown duct tape on it, but that's little sins and big sins. Okay, so brown and black. I say, that's you with all your sins, your whole lifetime, and they're weighting you down, and God says even one sin will take you eternally out of his presence in hell forever. But Jesus Christ comes and offers you the free gift of everlasting life, he comes to you and takes all of your sins on himself. And we have our sins once and for all, forever removed, past, present, future. God has no record. Justification means there's no record that I ever sinned. God has erased the record of my sin. How? Because he put him on Christ and treated Jesus Christ like he committed my sins. There's a street man that was walking down Drake Road where Calvary Bible is. And I was in my study, and the secretary didn't call me. She called one of the other pastors, and a street guy pushed his little cart up, parked it, came in, sat down, said, I want something for free. We always give them something, but we share the gospel with them. They shared the gospel with this street person with their cart. And that day, that pastor shared justification with that guy. Now, street people don't usually think deeply about stuff. And when this guy got done saying, God treated Jesus Christ on the cross like he committed every sin I ever committed and treated Christ like he was a sinner like me. The street person said, you mean if I get saved, God will treat Jesus like he's a boozer? A boozer. That is not a common term we use. And a womanizer. He said, that's what I am. He said, I live for alcohol and women. And this pastor said, yep, if you call in the name of the Lord, God will treat Jesus like he was a boozer and a womanizer. He will punish him like he did your sins. That's what justification means. But it doesn't end there. The other half is, 
that Jesus credits his perfect life to our account. That's why we're called saints at the instant of salvation. We don't have to wait 100 years after we die for the church to decide we can be canonized. The instant of salvation, Jesus comes to me, takes all of my sin on himself. God treats him like he committed those sins. The record and the penalty goes over to his column. I have nothing in my column. I'm a zero. And so Jesus places his righteousness on me. And that's what the whole book of Colossians is about. Justification is immediate and completely finished. The instant I'm saved, sanctification goes on for the rest of my life. The, the, the justifying death of Christ opens for me the strength to swim against the current the rest of my life. I can't do it on my own. Colossians, I mean, uh, Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness. The grace I received at salvation is the energy I need to paddle upstream. And so what is Humility. It's just part of living the new life Christ bought for us. He bought for us as we were saved. He accomplished through his sacrifice on the cross the reality we can live every day by faith. Sanctification is a process, a process of becoming more like Christ, growing in Christ's likeness. It begins the instant we're converted. It doesn't end till the moment we meet Christ face to face. Sanctification is about our choices and behavior. You know what? You never know there's a current pushing you until you put your paddle in and start trying to resist it. And when we start trying to resist pride, when we start trying to resist fear, when we start trying to resist our own lust and our self-centeredness, we go, oh, ho, ho. if I'm not resisting, see, most Christians are in the boat. Jesus turned them around. They're facing toward heaven, and they're not engaging in sanctification work, and they're basically going with the flow. And they wonder why life is so hard, because we were designed to unleash the saving life of Christ, what he bought for us to do. And that's what God's grace can do in us. God wants to, day by day, strip off what I call the toxic ways of the flesh. That's verse 5. The way we used to be. That's what verse 8 is about, all the anger and the wrath. Verse 9 says, don't lie, Colossians 3, 9, don't lie. We were born liars like our father the devil. Put off the old man, put on the new man, verse 10. Salvation completely changes our personality. Do you know what the fruit of the Spirit is? A personality transplant. You know, over in England, they just did a face transplant of someone that was horribly burned, and so someone died, and, and they somehow, I don't, I'm not a surgeon, but somehow they transplanted the other person's face to them. And it was a marvelous thing. This person that looked like a burnt marshmallow all of a sudden had a beautiful face. A lot of stitches, but a beautiful face. Did you know that God transplants his personality, the personality of Christ? What is love, joy, peace, gentleness? It's a personality transplant. People say, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah, but that's not the way you have to be. God offers us a new personality. By the way, sanctification and sanctified living is commanded. It's not optional. Verse 12 says, as the elect of God, put on. Aorist middle imperative. In the name of Christ, choose to do this. Sanctified living. And what God says is, it's a choice. Everything starts. When we, when we were intercepted by Christ in the river of life, and he turns us around, Everything from that day on is a choice. We can either choose to grow in Christ's likeness or we can just float. So I guess the question this morning is, you paddling? 
Do you know the disciplines? The discipline of scripture, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of, of memorization, the discipline of humility, uh, allowing the fruit of the Spirit to come in, learning all, more and more about worship? Or are you just floating through life, fearful, anxious, troubled, bitter? See, most Christians don't have the power of the Spirit because they're not resisting sin and they're grieving Him. And so... Practicing biblical humility is engaging in the discipline that God offers us of humility so Christ gets all the credit. It's time for our coffee break. I'm going to pray. Let's all stand, get the blood going so you can uh, have some coffee. And I'm going to pray. And we have 10 minutes. I guess they put a counter on until about 20 after. And uh, come back in. And what I'm going to share with you is uh, an exciting story about how Four years ago, Bonnie and I were recruited by 21 mission boards to go do something. We're special force doctors. Uh, we're dropped in overseas to clusters of doctors that work in closed countries, 64 closed countries, the Muslim world and some of the other totalitarian regimes. And we work with the missionaries that are not missionaries. They're there as medical personnel and aid and relief people doing all this American water and well and clinic stuff but they're seeking to establish beachheads for Christ. And as they work there behind enemy lines, they have every problem you and I have only multiplied by they don't go to church, they're not around Christians, they can't sing in public, they can hardly even look like Christians in their countries. And about five years ago they asked if we would devote our time to being dropped in to work with clusters of these doctors, and I said, sounds exciting. And I'll show you some of the exciting places. But let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that we would learn the discipline of humility. You command us and have already given us the grace to clothe ourselves with humility, to strip off the toxic ways of our flesh, the way we were born, the way we're wired, and to paddle against that and, and enjoy the thrill of seeing you, O Christ, transform us from the inside out. And then you ask us to share that with other people as we tell them how much you have changed us. I pray that you would bless us to that end, help us as we fellowship, bless us in the next hour, use these times to encourage us to walk in a way that pleases you all of our days and fulfill your purpose that you placed us here. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. See you after coffee.